welcome to Power Problems. I'm John Glazer. My guest today is Trita Parsi, Executive Vice President and Co-Founder of the Quincy Institute. Trita, welcome back. Thank you for having me. So there have been a whole lot of goings-on in the Middle East recently, and I'm just going to kind of dive in and, and pick your brain about a variety of developments. The Senate recently passed a repeal of the 91 and 02 Iraq AUMFs, the Authorizations for the Use of Military Force. That's a long overdue measure to officially close out the legal authorizations for wars that are that were over quite a long time ago. Uh, the key thing here is that the repeal in this case will have no effect on policy because the outdated AUMF that successive U.S. administrations have cited as authorizing the use of force in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya and Somalia and beyond is the 2001 AUMF. And so we continue to face this problem. On this point, Trita, U.S. troops recently got into a scuffle with Iran-backed militias in Syria. What are we doing in Syria? Was our presence there ever authorized? What's the strategic rationale? And how do we get caught up in these clashes? Our presence there was never authorized. And um, it was a big deal when Trump first said that he was going to withdraw troops from Syria. That's when General Mattis resigned. That's when Brett McGurk, who's now back at his old job at the NSC, resigned as well. Plenty of things had happened that they didn't resign over, but the threat of pulling out of Syria caused him to resign. But we never had any authorization to be there in the first place. If anything, we're again using the 2001 authorization. Uh, and the justification is the fight against um, uh, ISIS there. And, and there's some fight going on over there, of course. There's no denying that. There's also a, a softer justification saying that if we pull out, it's going to, very bad things are going to happen to the Kurds. That may very well be true. That was never a justification for going in. Uh, that was never a justification for staying in, in terms of anyone voting for it. Um, and, and when it comes to ISIS, ISIS in Iraq is largely defeated. Uh, ISIS in Syria is uh, a bit stronger. But the question I think that needs to be asked is, is it necessary for the U.S. to be there? Or if the U.S. were to pull out, wouldn't the other countries who also fought ISIS, whose agency is very important here, because it's not as if the U.S. did this alone against ISIS in the first place. If, if the U.S. leaves, does that mean that ISIS flourishes or does it mean that these other countries would have to step up uh, and, and take responsibility for security against ISIS and take responsibility for their own region? Um, if you take a look at what happened when ISIS first emerged, when they went and took Mosul, it wasn't the U.S. that acted first. It was the Iranians. The Iranians were the ones who immediately sent weapons and ammunition to the government in Baghdad. According to the Iraqi defense minister, it was thanks to the Iranians that Baghdad didn't fall. So we have clear indications that regional states themselves see ISIS as a clear threat, have an interest in defeating them, and will do so even if the U.S. doesn't. And particularly now when ISIS has been as weakened as it has been in Iraq and in Syria, uh, to me, it appears increasingly unjustified for the U.S. to remain there because it's not a compelling reason any longer. If one make the argument that at one point there was because ISIS was very strong, let's set that aside, at this point. Is it so strong so that if the U.S. is not there, suddenly ISIS would be rising again? There's, I've not seen anyone make that argument. Yeah, it seems to me no actor in the region wants to have a flourishing ISIS. And so the incentives and interests seem to be aligned if the United States backed out. 
backed out, by the way, uh, as we said, out of a conflict that we're not authorized to be in, uh, then local actors would, would take up the burden. With respect to the Kurds, there are a lot of tragedies happening in the world. 900 U.S. troops in Syria, with all the risks that that implies, can't possibly be a save the Kurds mission. These clashes happen occasionally. Uh, gets acknowledged as as pretty dangerous and potentially escalatory, and then everyone kind of goes back to to not paying attention. Strategically speaking, it seems to me we're insisting on keeping U.S. soldiers posted as sitting ducks to just get caught up in the crossfire in Syria. Yeah, I mean that that's the risk side of it. And 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 before I go into that, let's also keep in mind that. You know, one of the arguments that are being used uh, for the protection of the Kurds is that uh, uh, they stood up for us against ISIS, so we owe them. Let, let's be frank. The, the Kurds played an important role against ISIS. There's no denying that. But they were defending themselves. They would have done that whether we were there or not. It was not a favor to the United States for them to defend themselves against ISIS. So the idea that we owe them something um, I think on a moral plane, one can definitely make such an argument, but um, that's different from saying that there's a legal justification and authorization for doing this, or legal obligation uh, for doing this. There's no um, uh, uh, defense uh, pact with the Kurds that obligates us to do this. In fact, the ones we do have a defense pact with are the ones that would be hurting the Kurds, which are the Turks. And it just tells you how entangled we are in this region. We're there to protect the population we don't have an agreement with against the power that we do have a defense pact with. If that doesn't tell you enough about how uh, self-defeatingly counterproductive our entanglements have become, then I don't know what. And then there's the cost side, uh, which appears to be nothing until something happens. Yes, there's only about 900 troops, as far as we know, um, uh, in Syria right now. But they're essentially a tripwire for war with Iran. You have these militias that are allied with Iran, not necessarily controlled by Iran. The degree of control Iran has had over these groups are far greater prior to the assassination of Qasem Soleimani of the IRGC, the Quds forces. After that, U.S. intelligence have picked up that you know uh, this network of militias that the Iranians were definitely part of creating that they largely lost. Not control over, but the discipline they had over them. And many of them have their own grievances. Remember, it wasn't just Soleimani that was killed. It was also Mohandas, who was an Iraqi, and the leader uh, and, and, and the high-ranking person. Uh, there's Iraqis who will uh, seek revenge for his death, regardless of what Iran does or doesn't do, or what Iran says or doesn't. So you have plenty of uh, elements there that have... Uh, um, uh, a reason to attack the U.S. troops, but it won't end up being a local skirmish. It can very quickly become a larger war. We saw the U.S. side make it very clear that any attacks on its troops are going to be responded to. In fact, the response, uh, if I remember correctly, there was one U.S. contractor that was killed in that first attack, and the U.S. strike killed about 19 people on the other side. And then the, the, these militias threatened to do more attacks, and I think they did one other attack as well. Uh, so our response can very quickly lead to something much bigger, including uh, a direct confrontation with Iran, who also made its threats about striking the U.S. if the U.S. Uh, uh, went after these militias. 
And then we're essentially in a situation in which 900 troops there with a very questionable political justification, no legal justification should remain there. And on the flip side, the risk is that we actually end up in a direct military confrontation with Iran, another land war in the Middle East. Uh, how that equation makes any sense is beyond me. I can understand that it's easy to ignore it when nothing happens. And for months, perhaps nothing did happen. But then once it happens, the clarity of that equation, I think, is unmistakable. Shifting a little bit to a different set of international dynamics in the region, you wrote a couple pieces about this, but recently Beijing brokered some kind of diplomatic deal between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Can you first just explain that arrangement? Yeah, so the Iranians and the Saudis have had these very tense relations and rivalry going back a very long time. Um, and they their last low point was in 2016, when Iranian hardliners, clearly with some level of agreement of the hardline elements of the government, um, attacked and sacked the Saudi embassy in retaliation for the Saudis executing a Shia cleric in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis broke off relations, and then we've seen how the Saudis uh, were strongly in support and pushed the Trump administration to leave the JCPOA and impose maximum pressure sanctions on Iran, which led to a situation in which the Iranians were most likely behind an attack on Saudi oil fields in 2019, which the Trump administration did not retaliate against. And that created some um, panic in Saudi Arabia. For the last two, two and a half years, the Omanis and the Iraqis have tried to mediate, and they've had some success in trying to normalize relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran again. They did a lot of work. They had some successes, but they couldn't push it over the goal line. Instead, the Chinese came, more or less out of nowhere, to the surprise of most, and facilitated or mediated and managed to get it across the goal line. It was announced on March 10th, I think. And it is a game changer in the region for several different reasons. It's not a game changer that Iran and Saudi Arabia were to make up at some point, but that they would both, that A, that China would be the one who would make it happen, that they both would be okay and letting China make that happen. Those are two game changers in my view. The Chinese have played a very clever game in the Middle East, stayed completely out of the um, uh, uh, conflicts of the region. They have excellent relations with Tehran, excellent relations with Riyadh, excellent relations with Tel Aviv. And they have retained a discipline in making sure that the, the um, uh, conflicts between those three states do not affect their relations with any of them. That's, that's quite an achievement, first of all. So they kept themselves politically neutral. So, and this was very beneficial to them. To now suddenly see them step in and play a political role, that's a different China than we've seen before. What does it mean? What does it mean, mean going forward? Is, are we gonna see more Chinese mediation elsewhere in the region? Will they step in uh, on Yemen? Will they perhaps step in on Israel and Iran? Uh, it's you know, questions that we wouldn't have asked ourselves five weeks ago. Today, we have to ask ourselves these questions because it's a, it's a new world. The fact that the Saudis would be willing to give China this credit at a time when the United States and Saudi Arabia are having tremendous tensions in their relations, the US is constantly pushing the Saudis to normalize relations with Israel, 
And instead, the Saudis normalize it with Iran through the help of the Chinese. I think it's a clear signal, yet another slap in the face uh, by MBS on Joe Biden. And in my view, the latest evidence, I don't know how much evidence we need for anyone in the White House to understand what's going on. The latest evidence that this bending over backwards for Saudi Arabia strategy that Biden administration has pursued is really not getting us anywhere. One of the things you wrote about uh, on this question was the issue of partiality, right? The United States has approached this region for a long time in a, in a very partial manner. Our friends and our enemies are locked firmly into those categories, and it results in an inflexible posture that can't maneuver even in pursuit of our own interests when we're so locked in that way. Our uh, favoritism towards countries like Saudi Arabia leads them to do what, what Barry Posen called reckless driving, basically acting like a toddler who misbehaves because he knows mommy and daddy won't follow up on those promised punishments. And our adversarial approach to countries like Iran means that they don't trust us to be able to mediate diplomatic deals that accommodate their interests in some way. China approaches the region much differently than us uh, with a more impartial approach and maintaining good ties with all these countries. And it seems to me to be a strategic advantage to do it that way. Do you think U.S. policymakers can learn this lesson and adopt a more impartial approach? I, I think it's a very important question, and I'm so disappointed to give you this answer. I don't think this administration will shift. This administration's line, Brett McGurk's line, is that we're going back to basics. Essentially, nothing has been wrong in our foreign policy in the Middle East. It's just that occasionally we've been a bit excessive. If we just take away those excesses, the Iraq war, et cetera, then everything else is fine. My, my analysis is quite the opposite. I think it's the basis of our policy in the Middle East that is the problem. The excesses are natural outgrowths of a fundamentally problematic basic approach. So given how committed this administration is in the belief that the basics are fine, I don't think there's going to be much introspection about this. I find it fascinating. The Chinese did not offer any military bases to Iran or Saudi Arabia, any defense contracts, any arms sales, any um, security guarantees, not a single Chinese soldier on Iranian or Saudi soil. And they managed to get this. Done. And they have, through that approach, incidentally, as I said earlier on, excellent relations with almost every actor in the region. We have troops, we have security assurances, um, formal and informal, massive arms sales, and we are boxed in. Our maneuverability is very limited. And it's very much because we have approached this in a matter, that basic approach, that we entangle ourselves in the conflicts of our partners. That's how we provide value add in that relationship. We lend them our military backing and force. So that's why we're involved in Yemen even though it has nothing to do with us. It's Yemen, it's Saudi Arabia's choice to go in there, et cetera. Why should we be involved in that in any way, shape, or form, particularly mindful of the fact that prior to the war, we viewed the Houthis as the main force against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, which were our enemies. Yet we backed the Saudis and got involved in that. That approach, um, has, as you mentioned, made it impossible for us 
to play the role of a mediator because we're not trusted. We don't have the relations that we can leverage. And were we to change, which I think we have to do, we have to recognize it's going to be a long time before we can regain some of that confidence and trust and maneuverability. But the longer we wait, the longer it will take. So I, I would start right away. I would recognize, first of all, that this region is not at all as important as it was before. So to reduce our military presence, to reduce our commitments, formal or informal, uh, slowly but surely, I think is the right thing to do. We just released a report that laid out a five-year plan for bringing home the troops from Iraq. Bringing home the troops from Iraq, incidentally, will almost make it Im uh, impossible to sustain troops in Syria. So it's almost a two-for-one day. Um, and, uh, and, and approach it differently. I, I don't agree with the analysis that I think is um, dominant in the White House right now, which is that because of the competition with China, the Middle East has gained importance because our competition with China is not going to take place just in the South China Sea. It's going to take place in Africa, Latin America, the Middle East. And as a result, we cannot leave. Well, we didn't leave. We didn't fulfill any of the promises Biden made about Saudi Arabia. And guess what the Saudis did anyway? They went and normalized with Iran through the help of the Chinese. So <laughs> even if one were to uh, buy the premise of that analysis that we need to stay because of competition with China, clearly it doesn't seem to be working. I found the administration's response from National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan in particular to be interesting. They didn't do the knee-jerk Washington response, which I was expecting, which is, you know, any deal that China is brokering is bad for the region, bad for the world, and bad for the United States. And so Biden took a, a less reactive approach, but we certainly saw that reaction elsewhere. Um, can you just talk about that really broadly in international politics of why is there this tendency for the United States to view positive sum constructive diplomacy led by its adversary as a negative thing? Again, it's that zero-sum perspective. Um, I, I think the White House's reaction was muted, leaning towards the positive, saying that, hey, if this stabilizes the region, uh, it's not a bad thing. But come on, if, if it was really a lot of enthusiasm, there would have been praise. There would have been thanks. There would have been congratulations to China for having done this. This is valuable for the region. We're grateful that they've done it. It was none of that. It was very muted, but leaning positive. Um, and I think there's several reasons for this. One is um, this is going to be challenging for the U.S. if the U.S. is now going towards maximum pressure 2.0 vis-a-vis Iran. Biden made a huge mistake by not going into the JCPA right away. He chose a negotiated path, which has not led anywhere. The reason why he hasn't led anywhere is, is to a very large extent also the fault of Iran. But the decisive mistake in the beginning was to not go back in right away when he could have uh, very quickly in his first week in office. Now, with no JCPOA, the administration is signaling the use of military force, signaling a green light to the Israelis to use military force. And in the midst of that, having Saudi Arabia normalized with Iran, having Saudi Arabia talking about investing in Iran, that is a huge blow to that strategy. So from that perspective, I can definitely see that the White House uh, is not pleased. On the other hand, 
the White House itself, almost every senior person in that White House is on record having said maximum pressure doesn't work uh, and, and criticized rightly the Trump administration's maximum pressure strategy. Why maximum pressure 2.0 would work any better is anyone's guess. But this is uh, putting a stick in the wheel of that strategy. On the other hand, in the larger conflict, the, the U.S.'s approach, both under Trump and also under Biden now, is to portray China's rise as a threat to the global order. For China to step in and suddenly, out of nowhere, being a peacemaker, a stabilizer, first in the Persian Gulf, now dipping its toe into Ukraine-Russia, if there's a successful track record of doing that, it will be a very effective tool for the Chinese to counter that characterization by the United States and say, on the contrary, a, a rising China will be a stabilizing factor in the global order. It's not a threat. There's actually something that helps stabilize it and bring about peace. That is not an impression I think the U.S. side wants the Chinese to get. I'm not so sure that the Chinese necessarily deserve it after one successful mediation. But nevertheless, I think that is a variable um, uh, in the White House's consideration when it comes to how it has responded to this. And going back to one thing you asked, which is, um, you know, why do we have to take that approach in the first place? And I, I agree with you. If we have this zero-sum perspective, if we believe either we dominate the Chinese or China dominates us, then yes, then I can understand why there's those type of reactions. If we recognize that we're not going to be able to dominate China indefinitely, nor can they dominate us, we're destined, we're bound to find some form of peaceful coexistence. If we embrace that rather than rejecting that or viewing that as something negative, then I think we, um, it will automatically bring us into a situation in which this type of zero-sum thinking will be out of place with a broader strategy. Right now, it is completely synced. I want to shift back to this question um, of partiality in our international relations. If one had historical amnesia, the partiality with which the U.S. approaches, for example, Iran and Saudi Arabia, doesn't really make obvious sense. They're similar countries in a lot of ways. They're, they're the two major regional powers of the Middle East. They both have a lot of oil. They both have domestic systems that are at odds with stated U.S. values. Um, supposedly, we have to contain Iran for a number of reasons, but certainly since 9-11, Iran's supposed support for terrorism has been the major rationale for our antagonism. But of course, this is another area of similarity with Saudi Arabia. <laughs> they have a long history of supporting violent extremists that then become a security problem for the U.S., I saw the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, as a possible inflection point that could produce this kind of shift. But I, I'm wondering why, why the necessity of a shift away from this partiality isn't obvious to people like McGurk or Sullivan or even Biden himself. Why are they so willing to tolerate Saudi defiance to this extent? And, and, and why are they so insistent on keeping Iran in, in the adversary category? even though many of them were the ones that were empowered during Obama and wanted to engage Iran diplomatically. We're so stuck in our position, it seems. And it makes so much sense to shift this up because um, you know, so much of our 
posture right now. It's just really historical bad. It's a bunch of historical baggage. Uh, it's not a real assessment of, of interests. What do you think is actually keeping policy so stubbornly stuck in this disadvantageous posture? I think it goes down to the fundamental belief that we have to dominate these regions. If we don't, if we want to, if we believe that that is essential, we have to have a dominant role in the Middle East militarily. Then Iran is an enemy, even if we may have a lot of other common interests with the Iranians, because they oppose American domination. Saudi Arabia is a friend, even though they constantly undermine many other U.S. interests, including U.S. security, because they welcome and embrace and really want American domination. As long, I mean, the re- what we're seeing right now is that the Saudis have given up on the idea. They've essentially come to the conclusion that the United States even if it keeps troops in the region, it is not committed to the security of these countries. It can't be counted upon. Again, as I mentioned in 2019, they thought that the Carter Doctrine would come into play and the United States would go to war with Iran. And Trump came out and said, I'm not going to go to war with Iran over Saudi Arabia. This was an attack on Saudi Arabia, not an attack on the US. The issue is that we're in that gray zone. You know, On the one hand, it was very fascinating. Years ago, we kept on telling regional powers we're not going to stay forever. You should prepare yourself. And none of them believed us. And they kept on acting as if the U.S. was going to be there permanent. Then we had several of these incidents, and the United States didn't come to the aid of these countries. The United States withdrew from Afghanistan. And now they're all convinced that we are leaving, even when Brett McGurk says, oh, no, 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 no. We're just going back to the basics, and we're going to stay, and we're going to defend. They don't, they don't believe us back then. They don't believe us now. So we're in this kind of bizarre situation in which... The general trend is for some form of withdrawal or disengagement militarily. At least the will to fight for the region is not there, even if our fighters are still there. Um, and an administration that is unclear as to whether it wants to embrace that or wants to reverse that. And a region that doesn't care what the United States wants any longer because it's made up its mind that they think the U.S. cannot be counted on anyways. There have also been some movements on Beijing's attempt to mediate some diplomacy between Russia and Ukraine. We're dipping out of the Middle East here for a second, but do you expect that the Biden administration's reaction to a China-brokered peace deal in Russia and Ukraine would be similar to their reaction to the one that they brokered uh, with Iran and and Saudi Arabia? No, I mean, the U.S. approach there has been quite different. Uh, It's been a very quick uh, dismissal out of hand. There's some statements that obviously it would be good if the Chinese wanted to mediate, but they would have to mediate impartially and know the Ukrainian side. I think there's some factors that are not uh, invalid. The, 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 the Chinese have had very little contact with the Ukrainians throughout this war. I think their uh, foreign minister met the Ukrainian foreign minister for the first time since the war at the Munich conference. So I think there's a a legitimate concern that the Chinese are not fully aware of uh, the the Ukrainian perspective because they've had that that contact. That, to me, is nevertheless not a justification for dismissing um, uh, their proposal, which is just a framework uh, out of of hand. Uh, I think there's there's an inconsistency when it comes to how we treat Ukrainian agency because we say that, well, you know, the Ukrainians have to decide when the war ends. Uh, so we kind of defer to them. But when the Ukrainians actually gave a cautious welcome 
to the Chinese mediation. In fact, today Zelensky said that he wants Xi to visit Kiev. Uh, then we were completely dismissive of, of Ukrainian agency and, and took a much harsher line. Now, I can understand perhaps that's a, a strategy for us to play bad cop while Ukraine plays the good cop in this. But bottom line is, if we're overdoing it, which it seems to me that we are, we're going to push the Chinese closer to Russia. That's the worst outcome for the Ukrainians. I think there's a reason why Zelensky, clever as he is, um, came out and, and cautiously welcomed it. He had some preconditions that he wants the Russians to leave Ukrainian territory, understandable. But he's coming out now saying that he wants uh, Xi to visit uh, uh, Kiev as well, because obviously it's a very bad situation for the Ukrainians if, because of our dismissal, we uh, forced or we leave the Chinese with little other option but to gravitate uh, deeper into a, a sympathetic position towards the uh, Russians, which on the surface, I have to say, I don't see a warm embrace by the Chinese of the Russian position at all. Uh, it's, it's not as harshly against them in any way, shape or form as ours is, but it's not a warm embrace. So I, are we really helping the Ukrainians by dismissing this? I doubt it. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like it's possible that both Washington and Beijing could come to some similar set of negotiating terms to end the war. Like the, the outlines of a peace deal wouldn't necessarily look hugely different if China was mediating or if the United States were. Um, so it's not necessarily the specific details that Washington would object to. We're again just so stuck in the position of partiality. I'm reminded of something that you wrote in the New York Times recently. You said, quote, we view statecraft as a cosmic battle between good and evil rather than the pragmatic management of conflict where peace inevitably comes at the expense of some justice. Sort of like our inability to get out of that mindset is potentially prolonging the war, but also giving China an opportunity um, that is free for us to take ourselves, you know, to swoop in as the mediator and, and, and add not just to global peace potentially, but to their global credibility. And, and um, I, I think you're quite right. Um, the Chinese would not have been able to step in had we not stepped out. And, and that's what we have done. And uh, looking at it, 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 again, it didn't appear to be particularly costly up until five weeks ago. Because as long as the US was seen as the only game in town, if we completely um, uh, messed up our own policy, it didn't appear as very costly because no one else was going to be able to outdo us. Now we're in a different world. Apparently there is another player. And not only that, you have Lula in Brazil stepping up as well. There's a lot of countries in the global south that are stepping in and seeing if they can mediate. And that further isolates the American position in which it is um, very skeptical, if not outright opposed. Uh, to this type of uh, diplomacy. I can understand the argument that, um, well, there's an inconsistency here, because on the one hand, we're saying we cannot have a ceasefire because that would re and allow the Russians to gain control over uh, the areas of Ukraine that they have now forcibly taken. On the other hand, we also say that, why should we even do it? Because the Russians are not interested in diplomacy. Well, if it's such a gain for them, why are they not interested? I think the bigger problem is we're treating the, the commencement of diplomacy as an end to the fighting, meaning 
as soon as we have diplomacy, immediately there's a ceasefire. That's just almost never the case. We have diplomacy ongoing with fighting all the time. We've had it during the Yemen crisis in which the U.S. has been involved. We had it extensively during the Iraq and uh, during the Vietnam War. It's it's more common that you actually fight and you talk at the same time rather than thinking that these are two different activities. When one starts, the other begins. When the other begins, the other one's end. So I, it, it makes me a bit um, uncomfortable with our position of being so against it because the justification for it is such an unconvincing. I can again understand that if the diplomacy was set only for a ceasefire, that there could be skepticism about that. Um, um, uh, I, I can understand the argument. I don't agree with it because I'm not a military analyst, but from what I've seen, I've not seen anyone give a convincing case that the spring offensive is going to fundamentally change things. So we're going to do a spring offensive. A lot of people are going to die. And like the you know First World War, we're going to have the battle lines shift a couple of inches this way or that way. That doesn't seem to me to be worthwhile. Now, I understand from the Ukrainian perspective, they want to have their territory back. Um, there's, there's a complete understanding of that. But the Ukrainians are also very clear. They cannot even do a spring offensive unless they get full support from the West when it comes to more weapons and ammunition. So we clearly have a stay in this, whether we pretend or not, whether we want to hide behind the Ukrainians or not. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm really worried that if we continue to have this approach towards diplomacy as well as the diplomacy of others, we will end up in a long entrenched war. And it's very difficult to see how that ultimately will benefit Ukraine. The rebuilding of Ukraine will never happen until there actually is an end to the fight. So from the perspective of actually helping the Ukrainians, I think we need to have an open and honest conversation about what the risk of an entrenched war is and what that would mean for the Ukrainians. So I want to shift your attention back to the Middle East and, and just kind of ask you to take the long view here. When you look at the dynamics of the U.S. rivalry with both Russia and China, what kind of trends do you expect to see in the region? Is it bound to be a region of, of uh, great power competition, as they say? Or might we soon recognize the uh, limited national interests at stake in that region and, and perhaps permit other powers to become entangled there as we have? Um, we don't have the power to permit anything in that term. You know, if they choose to to foolishly emulate our policy, then you know that's on them. Um, let me put it this way: I think we are in an era right now in which there is a rediscovery of regional agency. The Saudis are doing what they want. They take great pride in defying the U.S. They're not just following orders. The Iranians have done that since 1979. Successfully or not, doesn't matter, but that's essentially how they conducted themselves. I think we have seen a realization in the region that because you can't hide behind American weapons and military might, you're better off negotiating with your neighbors and finding diplomatic solutions. I do think that the data we have seen so far leans to the side that the Saudi normalization with Iran is a strategic shift on Saudi side. It is not a tactical thing similar to what the Emiratis did. I think the Saudis really have concluded that their strategic objective of 2030 cannot be achieved if they are entangled in this conflict with the Iranians. And they're hoping that this will lead to um, 
either an end or some sort of a calming down of the situation in Yemen. The Iranians had shown how they can be hurting Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia had shown that they could be really hurting the Iranians because in the protests that we saw in the last couple of months, which I don't think the Saudis were a cause of, but nevertheless, their use of the TV station Iran International, which truly has become just a propaganda machine, was very useful for them to um, uh, put further fuel on the fire. Uh, and I think that gave the Saudis a bit of a confidence and leverage uh, in these negotiations. And one of the key things that was said in the uh, communique that came out from this normalization is that both sides agree not to interfere in each other's internal matters. That's a reference to Iran International. That's a reference to Iran's support for the Houthis. I think it's strategic. I think it, the, the evidence leans in that direction. What I think can happen next now is it can either end up becoming a region in which the regional, orchestra, uh, and regional architecture is built by regional powers themselves and is solid enough that it resists future geopolitical dynamics that could once again turn the Middle East into an arena of other great powers competition. And I'm not just talking about the United States. Another factor is, could this area become an area of competition between China and India? In a future. So the, the question is, you know, is, is this realization on the side of the regional powers sufficient to go as far as is needed to make the region immune to such uh, uh, future potential efforts? I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying there's a risk for it. Or will it just be something that, you know, reduces the tensions, make sure that it's not open conflict, but it's still very vulnerable? Uh, and if so, it, it could once again become an arena for competition, whether it's between the U.S. and China, whether it's between China and India or other players. Trita Parsi, thank you very much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.